0: Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Today, I'd like to welcome Jeffrey Pethybridge to the podcast. Jeffrey is part of the core faculty in the summer writing program. He is the chair of the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. So welcome to the podcast, Jeffrey.
1: Thank you, David. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So you represent something we haven't talked about so much, and it's uh, the writing department. And would you like to introduce yourself a bit more? I know you got some fun things to say.
1: Uh, yeah, thank you. I've published a single book of poetry entitled Striven the Bright Treatise in 2013. Mm-hmm. I came out with a small press named Noemi Press. Okay. I serve as the um, North American editor for Like mm. Starlings, which is an archive of collaborative poetry and poetics. And here at Naropa, I teach classes in poetry and poetics, film poetics, experimental poetry. Mm. This term, I'm teaching a class on three writers, Alice Notley, Atel Adnan, Raul Zarita, and their relationship to the epic as well as the contemporary moment.
0: Mm, that's so great. Awesome. Well, we're really excited to speak with you. And, you know, uh, I just want to ask, like, since you're a, a poet and a writer, like, do you, do you want to share anything with us? We can start off with a poem or something small.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to uh, read from my current work, cool. which is a documentary research-based poetry book um, entitled Force Drift, an Essay in the Epic. And Mm. it really mines clutch of documents that have been called the torture memos, Mm. the early part of the Bush administration, the early 2000s when enhanced interrogation and that torture regime was instituted by the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. All those documents that were both the legal justification for them, which is to say the sort of false legal arguments that were put forward to obscure the illegality of the torture Mm -hmm. as well as the subsequent reckoning by Mm. the government itself as well as non-governmental organizations. Yeah. So this is the first section entitled Force Drift. Sometimes a word is a color, bright apricot, ivory, tortoise, gold, Sometimes you are rose, smoke, bronze, blue, blue. Subject, sensitive notification. See also volume three for details on other interrogations in which sometimes the world is firelight, red, bronze, horn, cold bronze, black, gray, gray, gray he does, does not possess undisclosed threat information or intelligence that could prevent a terrorist event. After the insurrections, I increased security in all aspects of my life, i.e., constant white noise, no talking, everyone in the dark with the guards wearing a light on their heads. In part, This meant a return to communicating in person and handwritten letters. This is when I first reached you. The best mechanism for destroying the tapes follows. The world is full of theories of erasure. Was so cold that he could barely utter his alias. That citation can be a counterforce to redaction Obliteration is the dream of the book. Grown from a forest of nanotubes, Vanta black isn't so much a color, since color is predicated upon reflection. Sometimes you are stray light, a stray thought of fugitive hopefulness, sunshine through muslin, pure sapphire. And as Vanta black traps 99.965% of visible light, it's the virtual annihilation of color. Thermal camouflage is listed as a possible military application, which seems almost innocent. Rahman was so cold that he could barely utter his alias. I needed the trance that form of seeing grounded in the epic, the stark brutality of it, to begin to trace the body of the event. Imagine a space that's so dark that as you walk in, you lose all sense of where you are, what you are, and especially all sense of time. In the forming of the five senses, if that idea of the human remains, if that is a labor of history still. Something happens to your emotional self, and in disorientation, one has to reach in for other resources, Kapoor told the BBC. This, from the story of our aftermath, the story we will have to write. Van Black, Grown on prison walls essentially rendered their cells absolute voids. And then, almost at will, the sun disappeared. And then, almost at will, the sun disappeared. Wow, that was pretty powerful. Thank you. What do you call that? Force drift. Mm. It's a term of art taken from the practice of torturing people, which is to say it's a term of analysis grown out of the experience of reckoning what it is Mm -hmm. that torturers still are such a present part of state policy and action. And it refers to the idea that in a situation such as the interrogation room, that there is a tendency, a drift towards the escalation of violence, Mm -hmm. so that even whilst there were trained, for instance, trained psychologists present at Guantanamo and other sites Mm -hmm. of torture, and ostensibly their purpose was to maintain the legal forms of enhanced interrogation, Mm -hmm. none of those safeguards, if we Mm -hmm. can use such a word, held the space and all the sorts of obscene and sadistic crimes that we think of when we think of torture did yeah. take place. Yeah. So it's force drift is really the, the name for the tendency mm-hmm. towards escalation in, in those settings. Yeah, some heavy stuff. Thank
0: you for sharing. So switching a little bit of gears, I'd like to uh, talk about how you teach your class. How do you show up? You say you're talking about three authors at this moment that you're focusing on. Can you guide us through a class simulation and kind of show us what does contemplative writing look like? How does one teach contemplative writing?
1: Yeah, well, I think that all the faculty at the Kerouac School approach that question differently. And so there's a real diversity of tactics about how to integrate Mm -hmm. contemplative practices into the study of writing and the study of literature and and the creation of those ways of being. For instance, in the class I'm teaching this term, a poetic seminar, one of the authors, the Chilean poet Raul Zurita, was imprisoned soon after the 1973 coup. And one of the hallmark forms of political violence of the Pinochet regime was the practice of disappearance. Mm. Which, which political prisoners were taken up into airplanes mm. and they were thrown either into the Pacific Ocean or into the deserts of Chile. Wow. Um, so their bodies were never found or yeah. irrecoverable and thus mm-hmm. the, the term disappeared. Mm. Uh, so in, in approaching R- Zarita's work this fall, At the start of one of our classes when we were going to be discussing a a book of his entitled Mm Antiparadise, in which the landscape of Chile figures significantly, I asked the students to go outside. We all went outside as a group, as a collective, Mm -hmm. to spend a dozen or so minutes meditating on the sky with the reminder that the sky is not an innocent landscape always, that the sky is the site of bombings or the site of throwing political prisoners out of airplanes in order to disappear them. So it was a, a contemplative exercise meant to jar us out of our assumed security yeah. from the sky. Mm-hmm. You know, Mostly here in, in Colorado, the sky is a site of beauty, and that beauty is largely innocent. And so how to integrate into our own being and imaginations a contrary sense, a sense that the sky is not innocent, that the sky is a site of radical political violence at times. Mm -hmm. So we did that meditation, we came back together, and then we... Pivoted into a conceptual poem called "Sky Piece," uh, a few of them by Yoko Ono, mm. and we used those conceptual poems as writing prompts. And then we began, after sharing those from what writing that those two aspects of uh, preparation had yielded, then we began to think about approaching and mm-hmm. talking about the Zarita's poems in *Antiparadise*. Mm. Yeah. And when you have
0: conversations with the students, what do those sound like? How do they show up with that? Like, what kind of questions do they have? Because you're tapping into this contemplative way of looking at the sky and seeing it in different ways. What kind of questions do the students come up with? Is there anything like extremely clever? Is it, you know, it's not your average looking, how you view the sky?
1: I suppose I would call the the question searching, that mm-hmm. one of the things that, was yielded in this particular exercise, this particular experiment, really, was an unmooring from our usual senses and our usual habits. And after that unmooring, there was a real searching uh, quality to the class discussion, which was a sort of just, a kind of just conversation, which I mean to say it was equal to, or a perfect function of or for rather the Zarita's depictions of the landscape, which are radical and surreal, Mm. so much so that the class left us all asking what is even a landscape Mm -hmm. as it's so figured variously and radically in Zarita's poems and that we had had such a contrary experience of meditating upon the sky as Mm -hmm. a site of violence when the sky right in front of us was one of those brilliant, beautiful, front-range days.
0: Yeah, and I guess one thing to notice is it's not the sky's fault, you know? It's the product of human construction, I guess.
1: Yes, (laughs) political violence is always that.
0: Yeah, what kind of other practices do you do with the contemplative writing class? sounds like you have the staring into the sky and contemplating what's going on and viewing it in a different light. Is there anything else that you like to highlight and do with the students?
1: Well, my aim with contemplative practices is to try as best as possible to integrate them into the content of the course Mm -hmm. as seamlessly as possible, since a lot of our students don't come with particular practices or particular sitting practices. Mm -hmm. I myself don't have a sitting meditation practice. So the idea is a little more improvisatory, a little more experimental about what it means to approach writing through a contemplative way. In a class on film poetics, we would take an image from a film, so an image that was originally meant to be moving at 24 frames a second, Mm -hmm. and we would still it. Mm. And then we would meditate, rather, on that image with the dual consciousness that it was once a moving image and mm. now was a still image. And that double yeah. experience of time is moving, flowing, mm. a stream in which we live. And it's very hard, almost impossible <coughs> to think it as still, to feel it as yeah. still. And yet there are moments when I think we've all felt out of time. Mm whether that's been chemically induced (laughs) or purely experientially induced.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to think too how movies are just a stream of photos, essentially. They're doing like 30 frames a second, which means 30 still photos every second or 60, depending on what rate you're filming at. And so every single what looks like motion is actually just a bunch of stillness stuck together, you know?
1: Yeah, it was my hope that we would, as a group, move through that conundrum of stillness and movement mm-hmm. as they're experienced inside films. Yeah. So how do you focus on the author? Do you, do you pick a couple books to
0: read from them? And then the class reads them, you come together, you talk about it as a collective, you dissect the angles in which they write at. Like, How does
1: one go about that? Again, I think there's a kind of improvisatory approach to class. Mm-hmm. at The Kerouac School has never been an English department, and so pedagogies yeah. here are a little more open than the discipline might otherwise incline us as practitioners and studiers and researchers and writers. So I think there's a fair amount among my colleagues and myself of interest of different approaches to what it means to study literature, yeah. how the body itself might be implicated mm. as a as a heuristic, how performance. So, for instance, in a class a couple of years ago in which I was studying the Greek tragedians, albeit in translation, with a group of undergraduates, we were looking at the plays of Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides. And to help the students really imagine themselves across that difference of time and culture and understanding, we isolated the 12 distinct cries of pain that Mm -hmm. appear in the play Electra. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked about them, perhaps in a way that you might talk about them in the play in other sorts of settings where you're discussing classical literature from the ancients. But then I brought in a large diaphanous scarf shroud Mm -hmm. and asked the students to devise a performance mm. centered on one of the distinct cries of pain from the play interesting, and to use the shroud the scarf as an expressive prop mm. and one of the great things one of the great joys about teaching here at Naropa is the openness of students to experiments like that for them to The the real readiness in which they're willing to implicate their person and their body and their mind and their spirit, that approach to the whole person in the classroom is really such a gift to work with as a a teacher and a peer and a colleague and a fellow learner and researcher, Mm. so that we, as a group, saw 14 distinct performances working over these 12 distinct Mm -hmm. cries of pain, trying to inhabit... What it means, hmm. what it meant perhaps in fifth century Athens to utter those syllables hmm. and what it means now for the students to utter those syllables with their own body and to sort of apprehend that experience.
0: Yeah. So it seems like you like to integrate the body into the teaching. There's a sense of improv, you say, to the contemplativeness of teaching as well and in- what it sounds like to me is have a curriculum or you have like a skeleton structure of a curriculum but then when the class shows up because everyone shows up in their own unique way and because of that you customly fit the contemplativeness of the teaching to how the class shows up am i hearing that right
1: yeah i think like all interested and interesting artists and scholars there's a dialectic between preparation mm. and readiness yeah and Anybody who's been in a kind of performative setting, whether that's collaborative art-making or collaborative learning like teaching, everybody's really alert. Maybe we're always really just searching for the happy accident in which our personal energies are in that distinct form of harmony that is really such a joy and makes social, and <laughs> social life and sociality um, yeah. so sustaining.
0: Yeah, so... I kind of want to talk about summer writing program so there's this really cool thing that naropa does every summer it's three to four week intensive during the summer and everyone gets together and just takes eight hour classes every single day for like four weeks three weeks however many weeks you want to stay and you just have an extremely awesome eclectic writers authors come and teach can you explain more about that like what do we do here
1: yeah, the summer writing program was one of the inaugural gestures of Naropa itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it started in 74 when Ginsburg, Allen Ginsberg and Ann Waldman and Diane de Prima, a few other of their friends and yeah. fellow artists gathered at the prompting of Choyong Trungpa, mm-hmm. um Rinpoche. And after that inaugural summer program, they collectively decided to try to make it work as an experiment for 100 years. This coming year will be our (laughs) 44th year. As you say, we we invite around 30 or so artists and performers and visiting faculty to come and to hold uh, workshops, to give performances Mm -hmm. and lectures. I think a great thing about the summer writing program, uh, which is maybe distinct from some of the other programs which have uh, developed in the time between 74 and now, is that there's a real openness to the community. We don't have an application fee, there's no real gatekeeping. It's really an experiment and people who are share an interest in writing, new American writing, experimental writing, who are interested in the possibilities of community, of social okay. action and activism, yeah. to come together and to think together, to think collectively. And it is, as you say, an intensive. It's radically immersive. There's workshops during the morning. We take a lunch break, and then there are afternoon colloquia and lectures mm. and evening performances. It all happens on the original Naropa campus with the Greens and the Performing Arts Center. And I don't know of anybody who hasn't gone through it that not been radically changed. Yeah. I think for me it really did sort of save my life. Awesome. In 2015 was the first summer I participated in it. Mm-hmm. And it was a, the kind of shock of recognition of finding comrades yeah. and also a kind of rejuvenating experience that broke me out of a pretty terrible depression.
0: Yeah, awesome.
1: Uh, yeah, it's really beautiful what happens there.
0: I've had the pleasure of witnessing it a couple of years in a row because i was working in the events team at naropa so i was running sound and lights and just kind of making sure everything works right and running video and yeah, here i am running the podcast now but
1: we totally appreciate all that labor
0: <laughs> from the the crew yeah so we have a little crew kind of running all that fun and stuff but just bearing witness to all the teachings all the different writings the the vastness of the literature that comes out of swp is really amazing and in I do feel changed as well, and I wasn't participating in the classes, but I was there for the colloquiums, the teacher readings, the student readings, and everyone was just so well put together and amazing, artistic, and a lot of people integrate video, and a lot of pe- people integrate music, and it's really interesting to have everyone come together and show up as is and bring their style with them. So. Yeah,
1: it's a very interdisciplinary group of people that come mm-hmm. together together dancers, writers, artists, musicians, people come from across the world. Yeah. We always have some Europeans and some South Americans, mm-hmm. and um, it's just a really amazing experiment in community and thinking together.
0: Yeah, awesome. So I keep coming across this idea. The school is called Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. It's really fun to say, it's, it's kind of kooky, it's weird. I really like it. Where did that come from? Obviously, it came from Jack Kerouac, but it's, it's yeah, yeah. not your normal writing department name. You know, you show up to a different university, it's going to be like Writing 101, and, and we're like disembodied poetics. Yeah, that's yeah. for
1: sure. Um, the name comes in part from a joke, but also in part from a deep love. Mm. So as I said, after the first summer writing program, when everybody was coming together, kind of... To have a debrief about yeah. what had just happened mm. and what was next, and the challenge that Troyong uh, Trumpa uh, Rimpoche gave to both Ginsburg and to Waldman, for whom he was both a teacher, and so the challenge was yeah. accepted. In that light, mm. they named the school after their friend Jack Kerouac, who had, you know, died too early, and so yeah. it was a sort of loving memorial gesture. The disembodied is the the joke in part because they had no materials, they had no money, they had <laughs> only the sort of disembodied spirit of writing and yeah. thinking and being together. That was the propulsion for the school. Awesome. It was almost the Gertrude Stein mm. school of uh, disembodied poetics. God. So that would have been a, a different <laughs> uh, sort of ethos. It would have made mm. maybe the, the feminist line, which mm. is present and has always been present since... Yeah. Waldman and de Prima were part of the start of the school. It would have made that feminist line um, more mm-hmm. explicitly evident uh, yeah. in its name.
0: Yeah, and Ann Waldman's a huge part of JKS, SWP. She's, she's such a gem, so knowledgeable, so amazing, and also a great performer. I've yeah. seen her perform, read her poetry so many different times, and it's so amazing every time.
1: We don't have the time today for me to tell yeah. you all that I owe Anne Waldman, but oh, she yeah. is a remarkable friend and colleague, mm-hmm. a guide and hero in the field. Definitely. Yeah, she
0: kind of deserves her own podcast in a sense.
1: Absolutely. Yes.
0: All right. So, yeah, I really appreciate your time speaking with us today. I'd love to end on another poem that you have. Do you have one available?
1: Oh, sure. Um, cool. I'll read another from the 4 Drift sequence. Okay. This uh, particular poem is in response to a piece of art by the uh, an installation by the Palestinian artist Mona Hatoum. Mm. Um, I first encountered it uh, some summers ago at the Tate Modern in London. It's called "Impenetrable," and it's a um, 300 by 300 by 300 centimeter floating cube composed of barbed wow. wire. Um, what? Yeah, it's a It is exactly a radically arresting if object is the right word when Mm -hmm. you encounter it. The poem is called Force Drift. And as I said, it's a response to Mona Hatoum's artwork, Impenetrable. But it also integrates uh, quotes from an essay by Judith Butler. Force Drift. In the sudden and catastrophic were... I propose to consider a dimension of political life, of the Tate Modern, a cube composed of empty space, a dimension of political life that has to do with our exposure to violence, and 40 and 441 barbed wire rods suspended in midair, our exposure to violence and our complicity in it, arrests and thrills the mere body you were, and our complicity in it with our vulnerability, moving room to room, now urgent, a revolutionary, with our vulnerability to loss and the task of mourning, subject even, a sublime halt and rupture, Loss and the task of mourning that follows, if ever, if ever. And you, yourself, a swarm that follows, and with finding a basis for community, with this urgency and demand, this new vocation, with finding a basis for community in these conditions, in the sudden and catastrophic world. Wow. Really good. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, David. Yeah.
0: I'd like to thank Jeffrey today. Jeffrey Pethybridge, he is the faculty in SWP, the Summer Writing Program, and he is also the chair of the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.